Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. Today we're gonna be learning a lot about a foreign entrepreneur coming to the US, uh, definitely experiencing the hyper growth at companies like Facebook or Oracle, and then also building data, databases, data systems, and, and companies at scale. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ashish Toussaint. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So originally born and raised in, in Delhi, in India. So uh, I, I understand that you were part of a middle class uh, uh, family with both parents that were doctors. So education being key. So so how was life growing up there? Uh, it was uh, it was fantastic. You know, India is a multicultural uh, society and uh, there are various different layers uh, in the society there. And I was part of the middle class. Uh, middle class, if you, uh, is actually the engine that drives a lot of the economy in India. And uh, both my parents had strong educational backgrounds. And uh, at, at home, education was always given a lot of preference. Uh, back in the time when I was growing in India, there were also not too many opportunities. This was before the economy was opened up. Um, it was still a very government-controlled economy at that time. Now India is obviously one of the most booming economies uh, in the world. But back in the time, um, success basically meant uh, having a very strong education background. And uh, uh, you know for, that was drilled into us uh, while we were growing up. Uh, both my parents were doctors. I did not choose to continue in that profession. Uh, I was much more um, excited by technology and what technology could do for the future of uh, mankind. And uh, uh, while both of my parents were in very uh, in a in a strong, noble profession which has direct impact of human life, I chose to uh, go down my path. But the common theme here was that education was very, very important um, uh, part of our of our upbringing. And when was that a first time where you got exposed to a computer? Uh, it was in, uh, you know, it was a little late than what kids do today. You know, I have a son uh, who's been playing with computers since he was, uh, I don't know, six, seven years old. I got exposed uh, in seventh, in eighth grade, actually. Um, uh, and uh, that was a very, very early time. The first computer uh, that I got exposed to was a BBC Micro. Uh, this was still a time when you had floppy disks. 
um and i think a kilobyte of memory or a few kilobytes of memory was like a uh, was like a dream come true you were we were programming in basic at that time that was the first language that i learned uh and uh, uh it was uh, you know it was um, uh, you know i connected completely uh with that machine so it was uh, from day one um it was uh, very clear to me that uh, you know that is the technology is a path uh it was fascinating to see what a computer could do at that time uh, now of course uh, in hindsight you think those things are trivial but uh, you know at that time uh, you know we wrote some uh, you know as part of one of our school projects this was back in 12th grade we wrote um, uh, software to do uh, some sort of uh, uh, you know telephone call center uh, sort of things uh, very rudimentary um, but it gave you a good Uh, insight on what was possible in the future and that got really uh, got me excited about uh, going into this field and why do you think because one of the things that that I keep coming across is incredible entrepreneurs that are engineers turned uh, into business people you know into CEOs and and, and founders of hyper growth companies so why why is why is that why is there such incredible engineers that are coming from india so uh, there are two uh, uh, there are two reasons first is an engineering background at the end of the day uh, what do engineers do they build things layer by layer so i think the key uh, thing around engineering is uh, you know taking a problem breaking it down into small parts and uh, then uh, you know achieving one part at a time and putting all of that together to create an edifice if you think about building businesses it's not very different yes there are a lot of uh, other skills that you need apart from engineering to build out a business but at the fundamental level you are building something you are faced with certain problems you break it down into smaller parts uh you find solutions to those smaller parts and then you you know bring those parts together uh so in my view i think uh, building a business uh, uh, the core engineering skills of being able to decompose problems and then putting together solutions is what happens in business as well that doesn't mean uh, that uh, you know uh, you know uh, just engineering skills are sufficient of course on the way at least in my journey you know i have picked up a lot of other skills and you have to have a very open mind in uh, in learning of those skills in uh, you know learning from i have a you know a learning sort of a disposition but at the end of the day you are building something so i think that's why the engineering background helps a lot of course uh, it do, it also doesn't mean just that engineers can build business there's obviously a lot of other people in different walks of life uh who have gone down that path but i do think that uh, the engineering training helps uh because it's fundamentally building something the second part uh, about india is uh you know we grew up in a society where um there was a lot of uh, you know resources were uh, resources were constrained now of course india is a very different com- uh, country uh compared to what it was this was back in the 80s and the early 90s we grew up in a society where resources were constrained there was a lot of competition and uh, when you are growing in that society essentially uh, you uh, you realize that uh, you have to um, you know you have to and you know you have to be self taught 
you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, more than self-taught, you have to be self-driven to some degree. And uh, you also figure out that you have to start, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to excel in areas as opposed to just, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, trying to get by, you know, in that society, in that, in that time, at least when resources are constrained and competition was great, uh, it was, uh, you know, those were very, very important assets. Uh, you know, it's a country of billion plus people and with the constrained resources, competition was there. So I think that certainly teaches you certain skills. Uh, it teaches you uh, certain, uh, you know, uh, a certain way of uh, competing. It teaches you a certain way of thinking. It also develops, because of that society, it helps you develop certain amount of empathy uh, with uh, with with uh, you know all the uh, folks, uh, whether they are your employees, whether they are your partners, whether they are customers, it teaches you a whole bunch of things, uh, and I think that also helps, and that's why I think you see a lot of uh, entrepreneurs from India with technical backgrounds being successful in environments where they get opportunity. Uh, and, uh, you know, States has been a fantastic uh, environment to do that. One of the uh, key things about United States is the ability to uh, to realize a dream. And, uh, you know, if you have if you have grown with those skills, uh, this uh, the culture here uh, really becomes a nurturing culture to enable you to do that. Uh, so I think uh, that's why you see a lot of, uh, you know, folks from India with a technical background becoming successful in entrepreneurship here. Got it. And obviously, you know, it's very interesting that, that you're mentioning this because in your case, you also came to the U.S. So you did your computer science degree there in India, uh, in, in Delhi. You know, obviously a really remarkable university there, really tough to get in. Uh, and then wh why did you come here to, to the U.S.? You came to the University of Wisconsin to do your, your Ph.D., but, but why did you do that? So, uh, so India has... Uh, so I went to uh, uh, do my undergrad in IIT Delhi, uh, and IIT is this whole system of uh, technical institutions that were set up in the 60s uh, by the first prime minister of India, uh, who had the vision to uh, make in you know uh, make a technocratic society in India, and uh, they have actually produced. Uh, some of the best uh, uh, minds and some of the best uh, uh, you know contributors in various different fields of life, uh, not just entrepreneurship but others as well. Uh, the IIT education, uh, apart from the education, it also you know because there was so much competition to get into, you get the best of the uh, you know best of the breed in that uh, in that institution. And so it also provided, a, uh, you know, an environment where you could learn a lot from extremely smart people uh, all around you. All the students there are, you know, uh, uh, ambitious. All the students there are uh, very smart. Uh, and all the students there are, uh, uh, you know, a very, uh, it, it's a very collaborative uh, environment while still fostering competition. So, you know, all of that gave a good exposure. At that time, though, India did not have as much uh, resources in higher education uh, and by uh, not higher education in uh, in postgraduate or, um, you know, yeah, in graduate studies. Undergrads, these institutions were very, very strong. Uh, 
but at that time uh, in india uh, you did not have as much uh, investment going on into uh, you know graduate studies uh, and so it was natural to look at places where where you could uh, which could offer uh, those um, uh, you know those environments and us was a premier place uh, and that's why you know i was interested in studying databases i came to the premier university here in uh, in wisconsin madison uh which was known for its database department and known for its hardware department and for me that was an exciting opportunity to learn from uh the best minds uh in those fields uh and uh, that's why i took that step uh, you know i came here um and uh, i am extremely grateful to what that experience that institution uh, both these institutions taught me uh and uh, along the way i have made a lot of uh, friends uh in both these institutions friends that are still in touch and we talk regularly today as well uh and uh, that's the reason why i came here because uh the amount of uh, technology exposure and the amount of teaching that you could get here was not possible at that time um and this was the late 90s the indian society or the indian government had just opened up the economy now of course india has a lot of uh, great institutions as well uh but uh, in for the under, for the graduate study but at that time there was not uh, that much of opportunity there and that's why I, i came here and i'm thankful for being part of the wisconsin alumni here um and that institution taught me a lot as well got it so then after that you know you got the phd you moved to silicon valley and your first gig is with uh, with oracle and you were with them for about 6 years. Now, I understand that you already had the relationship with databases and really in Oracle is where you really were able to expand your knowledge to scalable systems. So, can you tell us what does a scalable system look like, especially for the people that are not sophisticated? So, um, you know, scalable scalable systems um essentially is a term used for uh, certain architectures that are able to take a unit uh which performs a certain function and replicate that unit over a large you know over a large set so that that function can be performed at a much much uh larger um, uh, you know scale for example if you have set up a website and uh, you are uh, you know getting say you know 10 users a day or 100 users a day or even 1000 users a day you can essentially uh you know set that up in a single server or with a certain software stack and be able to uh you know uh, make sure that your website is able to or your application web application is able to service your users it doesn't have any downtimes if you know 1000 people are hitting that uh server then they are able to uh you know get the uh, be able to access the application and do what the application wants uh, is providing them to do however this problem changes fundamentally if from 1000 users you're going to you know 10 million 20 million 100 million users or even a billion users in case of facebook there are billions of users uh then this uh, what what would work in a single server you know uh, or a single server sort of an application which is serving say 1000 users breaks down very rapidly uh as as more and more users are trying to access that system that is where designing systems that can scale 
comes into play, ideally you want to make a system where you can add like a server and then another server and you can continue to do that as you get more and more users coming in. Uh, and that makes uh, both being able to um, address the demand that is coming in much easier and it, may, it gives a very elegant engineering solution to the whole problem uh, and does not and gives you the confidence that it does not put any limits to your growth. So that is what is meant by scalable systems. This, this same concept of having a replicable unit, which you can keep adding to serve the demand that is coming in, is applicable not just in uh, websites, but in other forms of engineering in data systems. The same problem happens if you are, uh, you know, it's, a, it's one kind of a system you deal with if you are uh, processing a gigabyte of data. But when you're talking about tens of petabytes of data or exabytes of data, you know, Kubel, for example, uh, uh, done, uh, does hundreds of petabytes to an exabyte of data every month of processing. Got it. So, so to, to be able to scale there, you have to ensure that you can add, easily just add more units and be able to provide that, uh, you know, that processing power. And this is also applicable in other, you know, walks of life, not just engineering. Uh, you know, government systems are fantastic uh, around uh, this or, you know, uh, if even if you're providing any kind of service, any commercial service, uh, it's one thing to provide service to, you know, thousand people, but another thing to provide that service to million plus people. Uh, so you have to engineer systems uh, that can be, have this property of replicable units, which you can add to to serve, uh, you know, to serve that sub, uh, demand. Very cool. So then after you did the uh, the six years at Oracle, I mean, you were always itching something, to do something on your own. However, there was this really interesting opportunity with Identity Engines. Uh, it was a company that was starting. You were one of, you were going to be one of the early employees and you joined them. Uh, now, however, the company didn't perform as, as you expected. And, and, and first, you know, I'd like to know, like, what was exactly the company doing and then what went wrong? Mm -hmm. So the company was actually um, at a, uh, you know, it was a security company or um, sort of an authentication uh, company. Uh, we at Identity Engines built out certain appliances which had, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, there was a protocol called RADIUS. Uh, which we brought in into a part of our appliances. And these appliances could be deployed uh, to provide authentication services uh, in campuses. It could be deployed or provide authentication services in, um, uh, in uh, uh, you know, in, um, uh, in commercial campuses. It could be done in uh, educational campuses and a whole bunch of places. So basically, the whole, um, the whole thesis behind the company was that at that time, uh, there were there was a plethora of devices that was coming online. Uh, it was no longer a time where, and this was early two thousands. Uh, this was um, a time where uh, it was you know we had moved from desktops to laptops, uh, and uh, you know uh, mobile phones were also becoming uh, more and more common. There, though nowhere the smartphone was not in the horizon at at that time, and so on and so forth. But there was a plethora of devices. So identity engines wanted to make uh, systems that could help in authentication and authorization of those devices onto the network uh, through an appliance form factor. Uh, it was a great idea at that time. Uh, however, uh, one of the key things that went wrong there was we picked up a tough market 
to go after uh, and that actually taught me as to what you know why not just the technology is important but the market that you choose uh, is equally important the first market or the first beachhead that as a startup you want to choose uh, to dominate becomes very important rnd engines we made a choice to go after education uh, and uh, what we did not uh, uh, you know what we did not figure out was that number one it was a slow moving market education was very very slow moving market and as a startup you want to make sure uh, that you are driving momentum and as a startup you you know you want to make sure that you are driving fast business momentum and going into a slow market uh, which moved very slowly uh, was not the right choice uh the second thing uh, that we also got wrong was that a lot of our inve- you know uh, product development uh went into making uh these devices uh be able to support you know hundreds if not thousands of users logging in at the same time and we figured out later that in the market that we were in that was not a requirement so a core part of our differentiation did not shine through in that particular market and there were other parts of differentiation that were worked well in that market but the core part did not so as a result of all of this uh, we did not uh, get to a product market fit and most of the startups actually fail uh, in that stage uh, you know once you get a product market fit then there's of course challenges in scaling it uh, but getting to a product market fit um, is very very important and to me i think identity engines uh, not get a proper product market fit uh and that taught me a lot that taught me that when you are engineering a company when you are building something from scratch uh especially if you are building a business not only is technology important technology is a very very important part of the uh, puzzle but also what markets you choose uh what are the key characteristics of those markets that you want to focus on in terms of differentiation for your product and so on and so forth become equally important and that was a great learning from me from from uh, from my identity engine days got it got it so then so then after this this um, this period of time i mean you got like a sense of of the early stage as well and and then you made the decision to go and join facebook facebook at the time was um, they had about 300 employees or less than 300 employees they were probably having all types of uh, scaling scaling issues uh, but but you were there for about four years so how was the experience for you there it was a fantastic experience uh, i joined facebook uh, for a couple of reasons um, you know i had obviously um, uh, vetted my uh, or you know started my career in oracle and learned a lot about software development identity engines taught me a lot about how to start things from scratch and what are the th- important things uh, not just from technology perspective but also from uh, from market perspective uh, that you should look at and then facebook gave me the opportunity to actually put those learnings together and uh, in a uh, and you know and make an impact in a in a in a company that was fast growing of course when we joined facebook we had no clue that it would grow so fast and become such a global name uh, at the time when when i joined facebook there were about 20 million users on the network uh, however what i did uh, you know uh, what excited me about that company was number one the culture was fabulous it was a very open culture uh, you were encouraged mark would constantly encourage people to innovate uh, and not be afraid of taking risks so it was a culture uh, which was built towards innovation uh, 
Uh, and number two, I also uh, saw that Facebook as a company, though had built a lot of good scalability in terms of uh, the application itself, but uh, their approach to data was very rudimentary. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it was still steeped into the old school way of doing things uh, like data warehousing and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, that both of those things essentially gave me confidence that I, I could bring my unique background to bear to that problem, help the company in building out a template of what a modern data platform should look like. And I was very confident that the company provided a culture which would actually encourage that type of innovation. And, uh, and that's how I joined Facebook. The next four years, uh, so my uh, co-founder in Kubel, Joydeep, also joined uh, around the same time. Next four years, uh, we and a group of uh, very smart engineers uh, that, that we put together worked on this problem of uh, exploding data sets and how to create uh, modern data platforms or next generation data platforms to be able to deal with processing that data, whether that processing was for uh, simple data preparation or that processing was for building machine learning models uh, or that processing was for more advanced applications. Uh, the problem that was given to us is that there's a lot of data that is coming in and how do you make that data accessible for all of these applications uh, and, you know, so that uh, you can really uncork the potential that was there uh, in that data. Uh, for the next four years, we worked on that problem. On the way, uh, we uh, created architectures and we created systems that have now become mainstream and now are used everywhere, not just in Facebook, but also everywhere in the industry uh, and really started the big data revolution uh, along with the folks in uh, in Yahoo. Uh, and, you know, that uh, that gave us uh, you know, that was a great learning experience as well as a great, uh, uh, a very satisfying experience that we could build something for, uh, you know, uh, something that was impactful at an industry level and not just as a, at a company level. It also gave us a, a view into where the world was headed. It gave us a view into what the next generation data systems need and what they look like. And we actually invented many of those. Uh, and that served um, uh, that served as great learnings for us, uh, which helped in our later, uh, uh, you know, later, um, uh, uh, you know, undertakings. Uh, so those four years were very fulfilling. Fantastic company, great culture, provided us a great um, environment where we could build out a lot of these uh, inventions and innovations. Uh, and, you know, those innovations then not just uh, stayed within the boundaries of Facebook, but through open source, uh, it actually spread out and created an industry in itself. So what was your key takeaway from your experience at Facebook? The key takeaway, and, you know, that is actually one of the reasons why um, we started Cubol was both, uh, there were two key takeaways. One was uh, on the technology side, and the other one was, in terms of a company culture side. Uh, on the technology side, the key takeaway was that with all the explosion that is happening in data, you know, we are living in an age which is extremely digital. There are a lot of sensors everywhere. There are a lot of devices, smart devices. And data is being produced uh, 
uh, at a very, very fast clip. In fact, there's a Moore's law of data that data doubles every two years. So you produce as much data in the, ne- in the next two years, you'll produce as much data as you have produced so far in the entire human history. Uh, and when you, the key takeaway there was that when you are faced with this type of a data deluge, and at the same time, the applications of data are becoming extremely uh, complex. It is, uh, you know, a new sort of a paradigm is needed in terms of uh, data processing. Uh, we also notice that building out that da- uh, that paradigm and those architectures is extremely complicated. Operating those architectures are very complex. Uh, this is really at the cutting edge of technology. And, uh, you know, our insight there was that while Facebook could do it, uh, Facebook had the resources and uh, the uh, the ability to hire talent to do it. Our insight there was that uh, if, if this uh, technology and this paradigm has to go mainstream, then there has to be another way to, to really uh, democratize these data platforms for the industry at large, for other companies which are not Facebooks of the world. Uh, so that was one key takeaway, and that led to the creation of Kibol. The second key takeaway was uh, from Facebook. I was very impressed by the company culture. I, you know, I've worked with you know, uh, many companies. Uh, some companies have a top-down culture. Facebook had a very meritocracy type of a culture, but at the same time, a very empathetic culture. Uh, and very collaborative culture amongst the employees. There was a sense of energy there at that time. This was back in 2000. I was there from 2007 to 2011. Uh, And for me, it was great to see that how uh, that culture and creating that type of environment was so conducive to innovation. Uh, And so those were the two key takeaways for me from that experience. Got it. So then... Obviously, here you met your your co-founder, uh, Joy Deep, right? Joy Deep, that's right, Sensarma. And basically, the um, you guys, you know, were at that point, you know, starting to think about like brainstorming and and seeing the future together. And and eventually, you guys say, okay, let's let's do it. So uh, so walk us through that moment. So this was uh, so Joy Deep. By the way, Joy Deep and I actually went to undergrad in India together. And then we went our different paths. Then we converged back into in Facebook. And in Facebook, we worked uh, for four years together on these systems. What, uh, you know, what, so this was back in, I think, August of 2011, when we decided that, uh, you know, uh, it was important to take this innovation or take this, uh, uh, the new paradigm and bring it to the market. Uh, what had changed by that time was, um, and you know, we did, we, we you know, we created the self-service data platform in Facebook. We invented Apache Hive and a whole bunch of other technologies. We really created that uh, modern data platform there, using uh, data centers, using uh, you know, Facebook's, uh, you know, the old way of doing things. What excited back uh, us in 2011 was this paradigm shift that was happening in the industry, and we saw that earlier than most people. Uh, partly because we were in the valley and you tend to see a lot of technology trends happen in the valley uh, first. And that technology trend was the emergence of the cloud. Uh, AWS was still in its infancy at that time. Most people in the industry believed that cloud was a fad, that uh, enterprises would never move to the cloud. However, we are both students of, uh, uh, you know, Clayton Christensen's disruptive, uh, you know, innovators dilemma, which talks about uh, disruptive technologies. 
we saw in the cloud a technology that was disruptive. Uh, why was it disruptive? Because we saw that cloud converted what used to be physical things like hardware into APIs, into software, which meant, which meant that cloud enabled infrastructure to become agile. One of the key things that we were dealing with Facebook was, you know, racking up, uh, you know, we were always dependent on infrastructure teams and racking up servers, creating clusters and you know, all of that stuff, which was very slow. In the cloud, we saw that uh, you know, it was innovating in a dimension of agility or IT agility, so to speak, while most of the other uh, vendors, data center vendors were all focused on performance and costs. So this was a key uh, wake-up moment for us that, look, here is this piece of technology which is innovating on a different dimension. And once that dimension becomes mainstream, it will disrupt uh, the uh, the core uh, you know data center world, uh, and so we latched onto that, uh, and that essentially uh, allowed us to envision a world where we could do things even better than what we did at Facebook uh, in a more agile way. We could uh, you know we we took the cloud and we said you know what we are going to repeat this architecture and create a modern data platform for the cloud, which is what Kubol is. Uh, we'll uh, run and operate it in the cloud so that most other companies don't have to deal with the operational complexity that we dealt with in Facebook. And uh, we are just going to simplify uh, creating data lakes or you know operating data lakes on the cloud for all enterprises. Uh, that was the key uh, trigger for us that allowed us to say, uh, you know, even though Facebook was a fantastic company and had huge potential, we decided that this is what we wanted to do. Uh, to bring about much more of an industry-wide change, much more of a visionary change, uh, and uh, and really uh, use this disruptive technology to change status quo. Uh, and that's how we essentially ended up starting Cubol. And this was back in 2000, uh, you know, 2011, August 2011. It's been eight years almost, uh, actually eight years since we started. And what has been most... Uh, Satisfying to see is that a lot of those things that we laid out in our vision have over a period of time become more and more mainstream, become more and more accepted. And that has also lifted uh, Cubol, um, you know, as far as its business prospects are concerned. Mm. Interesting. So then so then when you guys made the, the leap of faith, then how, how did you guys monetize? I mean, what's the business model today of Cubol? So Cubol is a data platform uh, built out on the cloud. Uh, it makes uh, uh, it makes it very easy for analysts, data scientists, and uh, data engineers to work on the single data you know on a single data platform and you know create applications. Whether you know use that data for either analysis uh, or you know creating uh, you know advanced applications. Um, it is a cloud-based uh, uh, platform. The business model is also cloud-based. Uh, we do uh, we enable our clients to process a lot of data, and uh, so we monetize on the basis of amount of compute that they use uh, on the cloud uh, for uh, for processing that data. Uh, and uh, uh, and in many ways, uh, that uh, you know that has served us really really well. The key. A differentiator that Cubol offers is apart from simplicity. So you know it takes away friction from both operations of these data platforms, and it also takes away friction in terms of 
people being able to access and use uh, these data platforms for processing. But a key uh, thing that happens when you take away friction is that uh, you scale very fast. So we have clients who have thousands of customers, uh, sorry, thousands of users on Kubol using Kubol. And when you are looking at that scale, uh, not just scalability, but costs also become very important. So a lot of our value come to our clients uh, uh, because we are able to scale them very, very quickly at a fraction of the cost um, through a lot of uh, IP that we have built in terms of uh, managing resources in a very, very optimum way on the cloud. Uh, and when you, you know, bring those things together, we essentially free up our clients to uh, you know, have their teams focus on high-value added things, which is building applications, using data for insights and so on and so forth, as opposed to just uh, running infrastructure. Uh, and uh, that's how we work. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of uh, you know, great clients in many different verticals. We have been very successful on, uh, in gaming, entertainment, and media. Uh, we've been very successful in transport uh, verticals. Um, we have started to make forays into healthcare. And in fundraising too. I mean, you've been very successful in fundraising too. How much capital have you guys raised today? So far, we have raised uh, $87 million in, uh, in three rounds of funding. Uh, we are backed by some of the top-tier VC firms uh, in the Valley. Uh, Charles Air Ventures, uh, Norwest, uh, IVP, uh, Lightspeed. Um, they're all, uh, you know, folks um, that have invested in Kubol, um, and they've been part of this journey. They've believed in this transformation, and uh, what is exciting is to see that this transformation is coming, uh, we, you know, is becoming more and more mainstream. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been a fantastic journey, but there's a lot of work ahead, and uh, you know, I'm I'm super excited about the about the prospects ahead and where this whole thing is headed to. Very cool. So, so, so far in this journey, because I mean, you've been at it for for quite a while since 2011, and we both know that the journey of being a founder is is not as easy as you would read on the press. So, as you're looking back now, as she's in your journey with Cubo, what would you say has been the the toughest, the toughest, uh, you know, face, the toughest moment, the the darkest days that you faced, you know, with the company? So, um, uh, that's a great question. The early days of Facebook, uh, sorry, the early days of Kubol were um, uh, were challenging. Uh, as I mentioned, we had a certain vision uh, in terms of where we thought the world would head to. The world was not there. Most of the folks that I would talk to at that time, uh, you know, from day one, we said, you know, we are going to build a cloud native platform. We are going to do this only for cloud architectures. We are going to uh, use the cloud to actually simplify the data problem. And at that time, the world was very different. Most companies, especially the larger enterprises, were all data center based. And if you listen to the industry pundits at that time, they would all say, oh, you know, cloud is a fad. Uh, it will be something that the startups use. But if you are going to run really enterprise scale applications uh, or doing, do anything at enterprise scale, uh, you would really have to bring all those workloads in-house into your data center. Cloud is never going to be able to provide you that level of security. Cloud is always going to be expensive and so on and so forth. So the early days of Kubol were uh, what I call the contrarian years. These lasted from 2011 to 2014. Uh, and in those contrarian years, uh, we had taken a contrarian stance. And when you take a contrarian stance, uh, you get questioned a lot, not just by 
uh, you get questioned a lot from everyone. You know, whether in a company building process, there are multiple stakeholders involved. You know, there are, you have to raise money, you have to uh, recruit people, you have to, uh, you know, uh, excite your employees uh, about your vision. Uh, you have to uh, find customers who believe in that vision. Uh, and since Cubol uh, was early in its evolution, uh, those were hard days. I won't say they were dark days. They were very exciting days, but they were always hard days. Uh, and uh, it it really, really took a lot of belief and faith that uh, what we thought as uh, technologists would happen would would really happen. And, uh, you know, it took a lot in terms of convincing others to join us in that journey. And a lot of people who joined us at that time are still with us. So uh, so those, I think, the contrarian years of QVOL were tough in a different way. Of course, in every phase of the company, you face different challenges. You know, once QVOL had a product market fit, then, uh, you know, we, uh, we had a lot of learnings in terms of scaling the company, how you go about from an environment where uh, you are, uh, you know, building things quickly to try out things to an environment where now we have so many enterprise workloads on Kubol and such a large scale. You know, we process, uh, as I mentioned, or close to exabyte of data every month. Um, for our clients, we are on uh, all the primary clouds. We are to date, I think we are the only company which is uh, which has this data platform running on all the clouds, whether it is AWS, GCP, Azure. We also have a deployment on Oracle Cloud. And, uh, you know, how do you scale that uh, becomes a different um, problem. And we have had our learnings through that as well. So both the stages of the company have been uh, great. I won't call them dark days, but the early days were definitely challenging in terms of us having taken a contrarian stance and then having to bring people along with us uh, to believe in that, uh, in that vision and in that stance. Got it. Because how many, how many employees do you guys have now? We have about 300 employees. Wow, really nice. And and how big is the business today? How many customers or any anything that you know will give a sense to how how big Cubal is today? We have uh, close to uh, between 150 to 200 customers today, and uh, uh, they are some of the uh, you know many of our customers are using data at a very very large scale. So these are some of the uh, highest data users uh, clients. Uh, in the company, uh, sorry, in the industry, and they are amongst the leading companies that are applying data for uh, for various different uh, needs. And as you're looking back now, um, you know, knowing knowing everything that you know, you know, you've been at it since 2011. You've been in involved with this one as the as the founder and CEO. Now, you know, looking back, you had the experience of Facebook, Oracle, uh, and then also the the other company that didn't you know, uh, go as expected, no? Identity engine. So so I guess if I had to ask you the question of, um, you know, if you had that chance where, as she's you, you had the opportunity of speaking to your younger self and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? So uh, this was, uh, my piece of advice was, would be that um, uh, do a lot of, as a technologist, we were very comfortable when we launched Cubol uh, in terms of technology. We knew the technology vision and so on and so forth. Uh, but my piece of advice for any technologist uh, starting a business would be to pay a lot of attention to go to market as well. Um, 
if i was to do this again we sort of discovered our market uh, and uh, you know uh, but if i was to do this again i would be much more prescriptive on exactly which markets we are going after um in the early stages of the company um uh, and uh, you know pay a lot of attention to that uh, as well so that would be my piece of advice for any technologists uh, to start uh, vs technologists do have a tendency to think okay technology you build a great technology and then uh, you know it will be easy for us to for you know for people to consume that but very very important to think about go to market which particular market you are operating in uh, are there other ancillary pieces that you need to build along with the technology to make sure that you are successful in those markets and uh, you know we we took about a year to learn that at cubol but after that we really latched on to it uh, in the early days of cubol the good thing was that we were early so we had a lot of time on our hand to refine that but if i was to do this again i would pay a lot of focus to that as well and any any advice for for those that are listening that perhaps are on the engineering side just like you were any advice on on how to be able to do that transition from the engineering side to perhaps a a ceo role i think the most important advice is to have an open mind you know engineering gives you a lot of building blocks that can help you become a successful ceo uh but at the end of the day you also have to have a very open mind in uh, accepting constructive criticism taking that criticism to heart and then changing where you need to change or growing uh, rather instead of changing growing in you know where you need to grow there's a lot of growth that happens between when you are an engineer to when you are running a company uh, and you can only uh, be able to do that uh, if you come up with a come with an open mind of learning and open mind of accepting your shortcomings uh, and be able to you know have the attitude of working towards uh towards getting into that growth very cool and for the folks that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi they can reach out to me at uh, uh through email at ethusu@cubol.com and uh, they can also reach out to me at uh, linkedin um those are the two best uh, ways uh, email is the best way and uh, uh you know happy to answer any questions or mentor any people who are looking to for advice Amazing. Well, Ashish, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you. This was a great pleasure talking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business. You can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.